Side with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from the... Oh, my God. I was about to say the Upper West Side of Manhattan, but it's not. It's from a basement in Westchester and an apartment in Brooklyn. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Uh, good to see you, Andrew. Good to hear from you. Good to see your voice. Uh, be my voice, yes. Good, voice good, can just, be seen. Well, I can see all of you right now in, in all of your glory. And it's very, very nice to have human contact, even if it is through the medium of technology. And a happy Passover to you. Thank you. I believe it technically begins tomorrow. Right. And you, you uh, why, but yes. We, and you don't wish me a happy Easter. So there well, we we're go. not there. We're not there yet. I know we're in Easter week, though. A lot of holy things happening. Yeah. On Sunday, I'll text you happy Easter. But we're not there yet. I believe in accuracy of dates. Won't you join me? Won't you join me in Christ, Andrew, finally? <laughs> wow. What a statement. Me, Bobby uh, Firmino, Alison Becker, all of us. Big baptism. Let's do it. Come yeah, on. I remember when you said you were going to shock baptize me, right? You were going to like invite me to go swimming in a pool and then just like dunk my head and do whatever needs to be done. Yeah, going to do what the A-team used to do when they'd capture someone and put them into the black van. That's what's going to happen with you for your surprise baptism. That sounds nice. Very pious of you. Um, so here we here we are again, another one of these uh, none of us in studio podcast, the new norm. I just wanted to ask you before we get started, because everybody, we've had moments, you and I were texting where we've been down here and there. Tell me something, tell me something good that has happened to you since uh, since this started. Something uplifting that, that we can feel good about. Something uplifting? Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot. I'm sorry. I, I mean, something, I, I don't think there's been a whole lot oh, that I can really rejoice in. Um, but I'll tell you what was wrong nice. way. Something, something happened yesterday that was nice. I sat on the fire escape and read in the sunshine of the evening, I read uh, Sports Illustrated. And that was nice, and it was calming and kind of soothing. Uh, that feels like a very throwback Brooklyn moment, like you were like back in the 1960s on a fire escape in Brooklyn reading a magazine. Yeah. I love it. And now I have all the fake knowledge I need to get me through conversations about the NFL draft and the quarterbacks within. Nice. Conversations that you can unfortunately have with no one because you can't leave your apartment. I'm going to start screaming my opinions at people now very, very soon. That's what this is all about. All right, uh, let's start and go right into a subject that will bring you right back down. Although maybe it'll pop you back up. Uh, I'm curious. So last week when you and I were here, we were talking about Tottenham and the steps that that club had taken that we found to be, I won't mince words, basically reprehensible right. in terms of how uh, they were managing their staff during this time. Um, and then, uh, what, like 24 hours after we signed off, Liverpool basically did the same. Um now, the one difference in Liverpool's actions as opposed to Spurs' actions is that here we sit a week later and those plans are still in place for Tottenham. Liverpool heard the blowback, were not willing to deal with the PR firestorm that it had created, and then they went back and they essentially righted the wrong. With uh, Peter Moore released a statement uh, through the club, the CEO. He said, we believe we came to the wrong conclusion last week to announce that we intend to apply to the coronavirus retention scheme and furlough staff due to the suspension of the Premier League football calendar. And we are truly sorry for that. Um, he also included in the statement in the spirit. He did say this, but in the spirit of transparency, we must also be clear, despite the fact we were in a healthy position prior to this crisis, our revenues have been shut off, uh, yet our outgoings remain. And like almost every sector of society, there is great uncertainty and concern over our present and future. Um, basically, my takeaway from this is that 
it's exactly what I said. There was a PR nightmare that was created out of this that they didn't have the stomach for. Um, and I guess, I mean, I, I want to say that them going back on their initial decision is a, is a noble one, but I don't, I don't know that I even see it that way. I feel like in the end, this club that prides itself on this slogan, this means more, and these values of, you know, family um, that not have just been created under Jurgen Klopp, but go back to Shankly and, and have permeated all throughout this club's history. Uh, I think it will always be remembered, regardless of the ultimate decision that they came to, that their gut instinct was to do the wrong thing. And I think that will be a very hard thing for them to get over. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And and I think you hit the nail on the head there, Andrew. And certainly as a Liverpool fan, I was I was upset about it because Liverpool espouse a certain kind of, of what you said, values. Um, that means a move like this is particularly jarring to fans that actually believe that. I mean, this is a club that in many ways rightly points to its past. And the man who set the club on the course to be one of the world's most famous football institutions is regularly quoted that man is Bill Shankly and Bill Shankly said this Andrew the socialism I believe in is not really politics it's a way of living it's humanity I believe the only way to live and to be truly successful is by collective effort with everyone working for each other everyone helping each other and everyone having a share of the rewards at the end of the day that might be asking a lot but it's the way I see football and the way I see life how inspiring is that now, I'm sure lots of institutions have had inspirational, visionary leaders at the, at the formative moment of, 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 of their organization, and their values may have been forgotten. But this, Andrew, Liverpool is a club that constantly harps on about these things, and the fans certainly do, but it's not just them. It's, it's their CEO, Peter Moore. He spoke to El Pass just this December past, uh, 2019, and his quote is a saying, wait for this. We had this historical figure, Bill Shankly, a Scottish socialist who built the foundations. Today, too, when we speak about business questions, we ask ourselves, what would Shankly have done? What would Bill have said in this situation? Oh, man. Now, when you are saying stuff like this, you've got to walk the walk. You've got to talk the talk. It's like Tony when he was uh, Tony Soprano when he was talking to uh, Polly Walnuts. And Polly Walnuts wanted a wacky guy without a sit-down. And Tony just looks at him straight in the eyes. If you can quote the rules, you can live by them. And it's the same thing. Well, it's not the same thing, obviously. I'm not suggesting murder on the part of any executives of Liverpool. But you know what I mean. If you're going to say stuff like this, you better be prepared to stand by it. Right. It's very easy to come out with those things, come out with those like nifty little lines that sound good on a, on a quote in an article when things are going well, when you're winning, life is good, the fans are happy, but like now is when it matters. Like we are faced with a global crisis right now and your people within this club need help. They need to have a living. They need to be able to go home and feed their families. Like these are the moments when you live those sayings. And it's sad to see that like when it matters most, um, initially Liverpool were not there to deliver on the words that they supposedly live by. Now, the one thing that I want to say about this, to fans of Liverpool, to fans of Tottenham, to fans of Newcastle, Bournemouth, various clubs. Uh, I think it's, what is it, five clubs that I want, since I last checked in the Premier League have kind of taken these sorts of measures. Uh, I wanted to read something from Melissa Reddy uh, from the article that she wrote at The Independent um, about Liverpool and the decision to do this. 
And she wrote, furloughing staff was not a decision taken at Melwood, but one strategized between the offices in Chapel Street, Bloomsbury, and Boston. Hmm. And to me, that is so important, I think, for fans of a club to hear in a moment like this, because I think we have to remind ourselves as supporters of a club and those who can't wait to rip us for the club that we support. Um, You are not, as a fan, defined by the owner or the chairman of your team. No. All right? That is not what defines fan bases. Those are typically people. It's nice when the values of, of an owner or chairman align with the way the fans feel, and oftentimes they do. But, you know, by and large, we're talking about billionaires that are living in a different world than what any of us can relate to. So like when Joe Lewis at Spurs takes a decision to do this, like it hurts to see my club do that and to see, you know, a reputation of a club that you're proud of be dragged through the mud. But ultimately, it's not what I'm about. It's not what the Spurs fans that I know are about. And you have to remind yourself of that. With Liverpool specifically, JJ, you know, Melissa Reddy, she goes on to talk about how it's unfortunate that Liverpool cast this negative light uh, over themselves when they have Sadio Mane donating money uh, back to Senegal to try to help with the, uh, the relief effort. Andy Robertson donating money in Glasgow to help with the relief effort. Lots of players on Liverpool are doing the right things, are doing good things. And yet what we're going to remember from this is that the owner, you know, FSG at Liverpool uh, chose initially to furlough staff. And like, I know I'm not harping enough on the fact that they changed their mind and they listened to the fans um, and, and the PR mess, but like, I don't know. I just can't get past the initial decision. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, James Pearson, the Athletic, understands principal owner John W. Henry, chairman Tom Werner, and FSG president Mike Gordon were, quote, shocked by the torrent of criticism and stung by what they regarded as unfair accusations of greed. And that uh, kind of pushed them towards this backtrack. Um, but, But Andrew, this has happened before with Liverpool. This is not the first time we've come to this juncture with the ownership at Liverpool and a disconnect between Boston and what the supporters on the ground want. Um, David Kahn published a piece in The Guardian as far back as 2013 about the purchase of houses around Anfield for the expansion of the main stand and the effect it had on the community in the area. In 2016, the club reversed course on a ticket price raise. 10,000 fans walked out in protest from Anfield on 77 minutes versus Sunderland at home that February. Principal owner John Henry, does this sound familiar? On behalf of everyone at Fenway Sports Group and Liverpool Football Club, we would like to apologise for the distress caused by our ticket pricing plan for the 16-17 season. The three of us have been particularly troubled by the perception that we don't care about supporters, that we are greedy, and that we are attempting to extract personal profits at the club's expense. Quite the opposite is true. I mean, this is this is history repeating. And yeah. just last September, the club ha- applied to register Liverpool, not Liverpool FC, but Liverpool as a trademark, and that was rejected. Um, this is from the Irish Independent. The Champions League winners have made an application to the Intellectual Property Office, which, if granted, would ensure all revenue from those services and products using the word Liverpool in relation to the club is channeled back to them. Like, this, those are just a few... Um, kind of examples of where there's been this disconnect with Boston. And I suppose maybe it's asking a lot of, you know, American venture capitalists to to really buy in and understand the uh, the foundations of the club and the, I suppose, the, the precepts by, by which a lot of the fans want the club to operate. Here's why I have a hard time buying that. 
that they that they're they're, they're going to plead ignorance essentially. Two reasons. First of all, maybe they're just surprised by like today's knowledge of fans. Like that, like fans know more than just sports. Like again, I'm, I'm citing back to Melissa Reddy's column where she she said somebody tweeted to her the perfect analogy for what Liverpool were trying to kind of sneak through here. They said it's like going to the food bank when you can still comfortably afford to go to the supermarket and buy meals. Like that's what they were trying to do. And maybe John Henry didn't think that that fans would be so like in the know on stuff like that. But ultimately, here's why I can't buy him pleading ignorance because. He's okay. He's in America. Maybe if you want to say there's some disconnect between him and what's going on in England, I don't know. He's the owner of this club. He sh- that's not acceptable, but okay, fine. JJ, this just happened four hours south of Boston with the Philadelphia 76ers. The decision that they made a couple weeks ago to, uh, to furlough employees. And the same thing happened. There was incredible blowback. The PR storm was exactly what we saw with Liverpool. Uh, and ultimately, Josh Harris, the Sixers owner, released a statement that was almost word for word the same as Peter Moore's when they went back and they changed their mind because they real- he even said, we realized we came to the wrong decision. So like, you can say there's a disconnect with how fans in England will feel. Well, you just saw the same exact reaction occur here in the Northeast in, in a city similar to that of Boston. So like, I-, I don't buy it. I think they knew what they were doing and now they're trying to play almost some kind of victim card and it, it comes off wrong to me. Well, uh, Tony Evans, who used to write for ESPN and uh, writes for The Independent as well, and is a Scouser and Liverpool fan, unashamed, always has wears his colours um, in, in anything that he writes, really. He tweeted this, The decision to furlough was not made in error. It was not a misjudgment. They did it because they thought it was right, and then they've bowed to public pressure. I'm okay with them thinking it's right. I'm not okay with them trying to sell me this means more at the same time. And I think that's the way a lot of fans feel. You can't have it both ways. You can't express these uh, community-based social concern. We're in this together and then do something like that. There's another element I want to talk about. Um, Jordan Henderson was apparently the leader of a group of Premier League captains who had their own WhatsApp group, had their own group together, and were communicating about, about players making a massive donation to the NHS, the National Health Service in England. And that was completely undercut like a few hours later before they got a chance to really formulate and and make a solid plan. Liverpool went and did this and there was some upset there. There's also the, you know, the the ongoing debate between the PFA and the Premier League uh, and the clubs about how, how much the players should burden in terms of a wage cut. Wayne Rooney... You know, footballers are under fire from politicians. We've seen Wayne Rooney defend himself against uh, one of the uh, conservative uh, conservative ministers was asked a question about footballers and he went on a rant about how they should contribute. And Wayne Rooney was like, why is he thinking or talking about footballers in a moment like this? So it's it's, it's all coming together. The spotlight has been shone on football because football, think of a think of the most ostensible, visible shows of wealth in in modern life, in, in Western culture. And it's going to be footballers or NFL players. And they seem to bear the brunt. It's never talked about how much they contribute in terms of taxes, which is huge. It's also never talked about that there are people vastly richer than them who still do not contribute the same amount of money to, to you know, to, to the government, to the, to the exchequer. And they seem to get away with it, whereas footballers are the easy target all the time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's interesting uh, what's happened now. And um, Liverpool, 
again, I think, you know, it's just, there was a, a fairly easy decision to make. If this is one or two million for these staff, Andrew, it's a drop in the ocean from Liverpool. I think the concerning things that are coming out of a lot of Premier League cl- clubs, not just Liverpool, is that the revenue streams are cut off. We understand that. Um, but the majority of TV money for the season would have been paid. So I, I'm just wondering, you know, football, we talk about the bubble in football, you know, the first thing to really come along and prick that bubble has been this coronavirus and, and shown kind of how reliant the clubs are on the continued flow of TV money. And I understand that. Um, but, you know, what about the other sources of revenue? You know, it seems to be built on sand. And it's worrying when you see the Premier League statement today about how concerned they are about the power of the TV companies to pull money away from the Premier League. And that would leave so many clubs that we were thought were financially fine in jeopardy. Yeah. The problem, though, is that the other sources of revenue that you're speaking about, they're all affected right now. Like, yeah. I mean, you, you can talk about the gate. Like that may not mean quite as much to a Premier League club as it does for a lower league club, but that is st- it still does mean something. That's gone, you know. And then marketing, marketing and sponsorships. Like everybody's pulling out right now of of these deals, and and you know, there's no marketing opportunities to be made right now because no one's leaving their houses. No, but uh, I think I, I think the point I'm trying to make, Andrew, is that the money we see in football is all based on this continuing. You know, there's no rainy day for this. There's no, you know, the money they have is going in and it, it's going out in player wages. It's going out in, in other things. It's going out in um, in, in a, a wide variety of ways. And that's kind of concerning. Uh, you wonder, Jonathan Norcroft wrote an article and he said, maybe at the end of all of this, football can take a look at itself and maybe football can start to change. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. And I'm not optimistic about that. Although I will... I'll at least end this portion of the show on on the note of hopefully that's true, uh, because this is just this is just so unprecedented for from you know probably since what World War II you would have to say I mean sports haven't been really affected globally since then the way that they're being right now so because of the unprecedented nature of this you're talking about a lot of people that are being thrust into a situation where they really have no idea how to handle it so with that comes mistakes like mistakes are simply going to be made and so who was it that said that jonathan norcroft you said yeah he had a whole article about maybe football wouldn't would change its ways maybe it would it would you know the the behemoth it's turned into maybe it would pull back to a a less commercial a less kind (laughs) of well look that won't happen however i i at least have to hope that when this is all over there will be a, a period of like reflection and reevaluation over the way things were handled. And, you know, not to say hopefully the next time we're in this situation, hopefully we're never in a situation like this again, but, you know, moving forward, like maybe clubs will think a little bit more compassionately when it comes to their fans, their employees, things like that. And, you know, it's, this is a learning experience for everybody. You forget that, you know, that does include these billionaire owners that have never been in these situations before. A um, couple other things, JJ. Sadly, this is the portion of the show that is just not really uh, laden with with positive news. We but, wanted to, but, yeah. but before before we we go, we we're going to have a lovely trip back in time, back to Berlin in two thousand and six. That's going to be fun. So let's let's just get through this bit, <laughs> right? Because that part let's, will be that part en- will be fun. Let's endure our own content. Well, we wanted to 
send out our condolences to uh, the Manchester City family as um, Pep Guardiola, just a couple weeks after he was one of the first names of real note to donate the kind of money, like real money of significance, a hun- uh, uh, not a million euros, uh, Pep Guardiola donated to help overburdened healthcare systems deal with the coronavirus. Uh, just a couple weeks after that, his own mother um, has passed away at the age of 82 from complications of the virus. Uh, so you feel terrible for him. And, you know, you, you continue to hear stories of people that are, are dying under these kinds of conditions. And I guess the sad part that the family members who survive are kind of left to cope with is, is the, the knowledge that these relatives, their mothers, fathers, whoever, um, are, are dying alone. Um, which is the most heartbreaking element of this because no one can really be with them because of the contagious nature. It's just, that's, that's the part that really, really hurts. Yeah, and I feel it, terrible for them. It's, um, it's, it's terrible to read those stories of people who have lost people and they have been isolated, alone and scared in their final moments. That is just too dreadful to think about. And that's the realness of the situation we're in right now. Yeah. Uh, so again, our condolences to him and, and the Manchester City uh, family um, over that news. Just terrible. Uh, let's see. One other note here, JJ, that is um, noteworthy, but not surprising. Fallout continuing from the 2022 and I guess 2018 World Cup bribery scandals. Um, they're con- the FBI laid out more of a case this past week in pretty great detail over bribes paid uh, to certain members of FIFA for in exchange for votes for those World Cups to be held. The Russia one is obviously in the past now. There's nothing um, that can really be done about that. So focus will shift, obviously, to the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Uh, once again, Jack Warner's name featured prominently in this, which I feel obligated to mention uh, as somebody who I, I put him on a list a few years ago of people that have wronged me personally and really the country as a whole. Um, and the other thing that I always found interesting We've talked about this before, JJ, but I remember saying in the moment just how weird it was that Fox, uh, the network, were essentially given the rights to the upcoming World Cups without any bidding, without any competitive bidding process. And I remember thinking, hmm, that that just seems strange. That is a complete and utter removal from how things are done in this country. I've never seen that before. And then you kind of just go on with your day. And now you see now that... Um, Former 21st Century Fox executives Hernan Lopez and Carlos Martinez were charged on Monday with making payments to officials of CONMEBOL, South America's governing body, to obtain broadcast rights, bidding information from a co-conspirator whose identity was not identified in the indictment. ESPN had U.S. English language television rights to the World Cup from 94 to 2014, but Fox in 2011 gained the rights to both the 18 and 22 tournaments. After the 2022 tournament in Qatar was shifted from summer to late autumn, a time when it is likely to get less attention in the U.S., FIFA awarded Fox rights to the 2026 World Cup without competitive bidding. And that is going to be in the United States. The TV ratings for that are going to be through the roof. No competitive bidding to what will probably be the biggest World Cup in American history. Andrew, uh, me and you were together. I think that was 2015 or 2016 when they announced that Fox would have the 2026 World Cup. I be- I can't remember, but me and you were together. I can't remember what year it was, but we're in studio. And you oh, looked yeah, at me- a few years ago, yeah. Yeah, and you looked at me and you said, this is so strange. No bidding process whatsoever. It, it doesn't just- happen. 
does not happen. And, you know, we've got colleagues and friends in Fox and we're on ESPN. So we didn't want to go barreling in making accusations. But you looked at me, you, you, you blew through your cheeks. You went, you know, that big exhale and you shook your head and you looked at me and you said, that's not right. That does not happen. Everybody submits a bid and then they figure out the best one. Um, it's interesting. I don't really have much to say about this, except that the scandals of uh, international soccer and FIFA are being played out in Brooklyn, in New York City. And it may come to pass that America's biggest contribution to the world's game to date has been the exposure of all these things through our Justice Department and the FBI. Yeah, it's true. A couple of things on that. First off, in in reflecting back to that moment when, when we found the news out about ESPN or, or about the 2026 World Cup bidding rights not being up for bid, um, I feel like now when you're talking about FIFA, you kind of need to operate under the assumption of if something doesn't feel right, it's not. Like if something seems suspicious, there's like keep pulling on that thread because there's more that's going to unravel. Um, and like you say, like we have friends that work at Fox. Look, John Strong didn't negotiate this deal. You know, I know. Like, it's like I don't blame any of the guys that are like broadcasters there. This is done in boardrooms. It's like it's so funny. John Strong didn't walk into a meeting room with a with with a, a suitcase with like a hundred dollar bills bulging out the side. That, <laughs> that didn't happen. All right, no. that definitely did. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. At that moment, we were like, uh, like this is obviously wrong. But what can we say? Now, one thing, the last bit on this, before we get to a, a beautiful mailbag that you put together here, um, kind of off of what you were just talking about, how like America has, this is what America has delivered to the global game, is hopefully cleaning it up. I will say, now I'm not so naive to think that nothing is going on, but since all of this happened, remember when all those all those rich FIFA executives pulled out of that hotel in their underwear in the middle of the night, since that happened, like, okay, this came down this past week, but this is all pertaining to that incident. Right. I can't think of anything. I might be missing something, but since that all went down, I can't think of any, any like corrupt incident that's occurred. So like, at least in the immediacy, in the short term, like it does feel like we're operating in a little bit of a cleaner system. than uh, yeah, yeah, but those decisions are still continu- continuing to impact us, Andrew. They, we're going to have a World Cup in the middle of the winter in Qatar, we expect. Although hey, you know what, though? The, the calendar for this sport is completely messed up, so that may be the off-season, for all we know, when 2022 rolls around. Yeah, uh, maybe. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. That's, maybe. Maybe that's going to get back on calendar. Maybe it's going to work just all right. Uh, let's see. We've got a nice mailbag in a sec, but first, J.J., I want to tell you something, JJ. I want to tell you there's enough uncertainty to go around right now. NetSuite reduces it by giving you visibility and control with so many critical decisions to make. You need the right numbers and you need them right now. NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, we give you financials, cash flow, payroll, inventory, and more all in one place. We have clear visibility and total control over your business. NetSuite customers have the flexibility to work from anywhere with immediate clarity on critical information right at their fingertips. No more guessing. No more waiting. Make smarter decisions with confidence because you've got crystal clear visibility into your numbers. Join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to stay in control. Now, here is the deal. Receive your free 
guide managing business uncertainty and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash offside. Don't wait. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com slash offside. netsuite.com slash offside. O-F-F-S-I-D-E. Netsuite. Yes. Mailbag, JJ. Mail busy. Caught offside pod at gmail.com. Caught offside ESPN on the Instagrams and at CO Soccer Pod on the Twitter machine. Uh, Jeremy Gleason kicks us off here. Andrew and JJ, I am writing to you from Medellin, Colombia, where I've been living and teaching since 2016. We have been on a strict lockdown for over two weeks and the Colombian people have shown amazing solidarity. Medellin is the football capital of Colombia as we boast the best team in FC Nacional and the most intense rivalry Deportivo Independiente Medellin versus Nacional. Sadly, I am leaving Colombia unexpectedly on a humanitarian flight arranged through the embassy. But I have finally found time to share a special Clint Dempsey story. We love Clint. Uh, In 2012, I visited my sister in Houston, Texas. I was able to convince my family to take the four-hour drive to the hometown of Clint Dempsey in Nagadoches. Initially, I went straight to the Nagadoches tourist office and inquired about anything Dempsey. What? Yeah. Where, where can I get on my Clint Dempsey bus tour? Can I get the Clint Dempsey brochure, please? And surprisingly, the older gentleman helping me had no idea who Clint was. Not surprising. Oh, that's America. <laughs> he passed me to a younger girl who disclosed that Clint was actually in town for his brother's wedding. I asked where this event would be held. No intention to crash. Yeah, right. But definitely take a look-see. What's the difference? Conveniently, the reception was taking place two blocks from the tourism office. Doing my best not to appear as a crazy Dempsey fan, I calmly approached the hotel desk and inquired about the wedding reception. Immediately, I could tell the desk worker was prepped for someone like me, and she gave me a rehearsed statement. Could you, <laughs> they have rehearsed statements. Mr. Dempsey's not available for comment. I kept hope alive and went to the bar lounge for a beer. I met a childhood friend of his and eventually asked if she could have something signed for me. She politely declined. I didn't want to cause any trouble or embarrass my family, so I took this as a sign that a Dempsey signature was not meant to be, at least not at that time. That is not, I I don't think he's tried hard enough there. He's not tried hard enough there. He's already done more than I would do. I think once you're at the hotel bar, you have got to go full hog. You've got to find a way to get in. You got to talk his cousin into taking you in. You got to figure it out, man. All right. My sister eventually left Houston for Baltimore, Maryland, where she worked for Under Armour. Uh-huh. This was also during Under Armour's sponsorship of Tottenham. My sister, knowing that I'm a huge Dempsey fan, passed on the wedding story to uh, Under Armour Tottenham rep. A couple of weeks later, I received a signed Clint Dempsey Tottenham jersey. I uh, thought you guys would appreciate the story during these tough times. Again, I'm a huge fan of the pod. Appreciate the work you do. Please take care of yourselves and loved ones during these crazy times. Thank you, Jeremy, for that. Um, Daniel Baker is up next, Andrew. Been following football for years now, especially Crystal Palace, and have been a big fan of the pod for a few years. I appreciate the time you guys have taken out to put an episode out each week during the COVID outbreak. Uh, More importantly, appreciate the way you have expressed the seriousness of this pandemic to those outside the greater New York area. I am from Jersey. Here's my question. What team or player do you think is hurt the most by this suspension of world football? A young player in a breakout year, a player close to retirement, Liverpool, etc., etc. Are there any teams or players that you think benefit from a strictly football point of view? Um, 
All right, so I'll take this first. Part of my answer you will appreciate. Part of it, uh, you may actually get physically ill, and I'm warning you now, if you have a bucket nearby um, and you want to vomit, just be on, be on alert. Be at the ready, all right? Okay. The part of this that I think you'll appreciate, so I didn't really go the player route. He said what team, what like teams are hurting the, mer- the most from this. Um, I actually think there's a pretty easy answer to that. I'm reading from the BBC, JJ. They say um, English football faces, quote, the danger of losing clubs and leagues amid economic challenges yes. beyond the wildest imagination, says Football Association Chairman Greg Clark. Uh, he goes on to say, we may not be able to finish the season as football is not our priority. Human life is, and we will do as the government directs as the pandemic unfolds. Further down the football pyramid, our leagues have requested that the season is curtailed, and that decision rests with the FA Council. The pandemic will be followed by its economic consequences, and all business sectors will suffer. We face the danger of losing clubs and leagues as finances collapse. If you are second tier, third tier, fourth tier, you are nervous right now. There may be no coming back from this. Um, that's hard to imagine, like uh, an entire league being wiped out um, in English football. But that is that is like the true reality of this situation. So, uh, like to me, if you're talking about teams that are that are suffering most from this, it's like it's not the ones who you know. Like we may feel bad if the club that's fifth right now in England doesn't have the chance to battle for a Champions League place. Like, no, no, no. Those aren't the teams you feel bad for. It's these teams that may not exist when this is over. Now, having said that, here's the part that you're going to vomit at. Um, There are also other clubs that probably are not benefiting from this. If you look at, say, oh, a PSG, if you will. Oh my God. And I mean this purely not from a financial standpoint. Now I'm I'm switching over now from financial Andrew into soccer Andrew. This is a team that built an experiment to win a Champions League. Oh my God. Finally, finally, they've gotten through the round of 16. They're finally healthy. The tournament is up for grabs. Like Liverpool are out. There's like, there's no clear favorite from here on out. It's just as much theirs to win as any. And now this tournament is probably when when they're in their best position yet since the the Neymar Mbappe all those signings since those things all happened this is their best chance and now there's probably not going to be a conclusion to this tournament uh, so I'm asking all of you right now to pour some out for PSG if you want to shed a tear for them that's also appropriate uh, even Manchester City if you would like to do that oh, they're in a similar, no, 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 stop. similar you situation uh, you know the moment is is here for them they're leading Real Madrid. Uh, it's their time. And so if you would like to maybe say a prayer for those clubs uh, in this moment, I think it's, I think it's more than appropriate. What's their their answer? Non-business Andrew has a huge amount of uh, crossover with business Andrew. I got to be honest. Oh, get out of here. I just, come on, man. My real answer was the the clubs that may not exist when this is over. Your, your care and concern for, for clubs that are uh, owned by massive oil producing states is, is touching. And I'm sure, I'm sure it's touched everyone's hearts tonight. That was just to annoy you. You should call this section Andrew's people. Yeah, those are my people. I relate with those. I, honestly, I did not give this one a whole lot of thought. Um, I, I would say any of the players that are in their, their mid to late 30s who are coming towards the end, your James Milners, and maybe not even him because he's tasted glory at Premier League level, um, but guys like that who are facing into the uh, the end of their careers, that it is particularly uh, tough for them, I would imagine. 
Um, that's how I would see it anyway. Uh, Alexander and Renton, Washington State. I just want to thank you guys for all the soccer film recommendations, especially Sunderland Till I Die. I just finished season two and found myself on the edge of my seat for the Black Cats' most crucial games. Teams that are in a relegation and promotion fight makes for incredible drama, but can be detrimental to a club's business model, structure, and growth. Do you guys expect to see this, this system ever implemented in North America? I, can, <laughs> I, I love that asks this question so innocently, like it hasn't been asked before. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is so... I, I Bless your heart, Alexander. This is one of the most toxic <laughs> conversations in American soccer. Um, look, I'll give you the quick bullet points of, of JJ's beliefs. Promotion and relegation is absolutely crucial uh, to developing a soccer culture that is uh, inclusive and egalitarian. It's also vital, in my view, for the development of players and a system that means that players can rise to the very top in their own country. Um, I think it makes great sense for small towns as well. You don't have to have a massive, huge franchise. You don't have. You don't need to have Santa Don Garber on his sleigh with bags full of cash, deigning to visit your town and give you loads of money for a franchise. Um, and it's the way I think that football should operate. That's just me. But it won't happen. Uh, it, it won't happen. It will not happen in the current MLS system because it's a system of franchises. You buy in and you're not, going to, you're not going to convince billionaires that now they're going to not, they're no longer part of this exclusive club. They're going to be in another club where they're playing Chattanooga FC or whoever they've been relegated down to play. No, they're they're not, not going to say, wait, so you mean I risked all this money that I put up to join this league and now you're going to kick me out of it? Uh-uh, doesn't work that way. Not in this country. That's that's what you're going to get. And it's, you know, I think promotion relegation would be amazing in growing soccer culture in this country, but it's, we can't, it's not, honestly, we're not in a place right now where it's worth talking about. It's that far off the radar. No, it's absolutely worth talking about, but it's going to happen in, possibly in the USL or a breakaway league. Don Garber will not even table this in front of the people he represents, which are the owners of the clubs. Um, and finally, this is from Buttons. Great question we got during the week. Okay. Uh, uh, what players have you fallen back in love with when watching old games? Samuel Eto'o has been the one for me. I saw that tweet from him, and I, I responded to it. I liked it because that's such a great call by him. Uh, that's, I, I said, Samuel Eto'o, we, we did a whole thing. I made him my man of the match when he retired recently. That he's, He is like one of the more underappreciated players of an era. Uh, he goes. He gets forgotten because he kind of left mainstream football at a relatively young age. I think what was he, 30, 31 years old, and you kind of didn't hear from him after that. Um, for me, so I've kind of gone back. I've been watching some. I have like a bunch of like uh, Tottenham um, YouTube compilations of like greatest moments in, in Spurs history and stuff like that. And I'll tell you what, man, the more I watch Glenn Hoddle the more I'm kind of like, boy, I wish I could have like really, really been in my prime to see him play. Oh my God, finally. I've been banging on about Glenn Hoddle to you forever. Oh, don't act like I'm not familiar with his work. I know I watch him. I know you are. I know you are, but I'm glad you've got this time to like really drink in the Hoddle. How how amazingly skillful was he? He's such a, so just like a, just a great aesthetically pleasing to watch type of player. Just like, I, I enjoy his game so much. And while I'm saying that, I do want to throw a shout out right now. I read today that uh, Tottenham legend, maybe their greatest player ever, Jimmy Greaves, who suffered a stroke a few years ago. He's their all-time leading goal scorer, England legend. Um, he's back in the hospital right now. He's had a, oh, a lot no. of injuries. He's in the hospital right now. So uh, thoughts to him as well, as long as I'm talking about some uh, Tottenham throwback stars. Who have you 
I'm curious who you would Honest, Honestly, Andrew, I, I, this is a perfect way to slide into our uh, time machine and set, oh. and set coordinates for Berlin. I have been all over uh, Zinedine Zidane again. I've watched games from Euro 2000, from France 98. Uh, there was a compilation someone put up today on YouTube of him playing for Real Madrid. It's just the elegance and the class of the man. Uh, just unbelievable. What a player. So let's hop in the time machine, Andrew. We're going to set our coordinates for the Olympic Stadium in Berlin. Uh, are you ready? Here we go. Yeah. Hold on tight. I just had the tires changed on this thing. It's a while. Nearly there. Caught offside with Andrew Gunling and JJ Devaney. Um, what? What did we just see? What did we just see? An emergency podcast here, July 9th, two thousand six, World Cup final edition. France have just lost to Italy on penalties. Italy are your World Cup champions, but I. I am still in the process of picking my jaw up off of the floor after what occurred in the 108th minute of this game with Zinedine Zidane. I, I don't want to take anything away from Italy. Like we should be celebrating that, but I'm sorry, I just can't. Like I can't stress enough that I'm like in complete awe of what occurred in extra time of this match. And Andrew, forget about the match because everyone else is going to. This is the most incredible thing we've ever seen. The worst possible exit for a player of Zinedine Zidane's stature in the game. Um, he's headbutted Marco Matarazzi. The cameras didn't pick it up initially. The second camera, the second um, digital camera picked it up, the one that follows different incidents from the main camera. Obviously, the fourth official, the linesman, has seen it, we think. Clearly. Uh, well, not uh, the referee did. All over it. He, the referee, right, the, right. the referee had to consult with his officials, and that was it. And we saw the lonesome, mournsome figure of Zinedine Zidane walking past the Jules Rimet Trophy and down the tunnel. It's honestly one of the most powerful images I've ever seen in a sporting event, like him walking off a field in that fashion for the final time. Uh, this is final game, of course. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to like go through in my head the most shocking moments that I've seen in a sporting event of this of this kind of magnitude. I mean, because like we can go to Eric Cantona and things like that. Yeah, right. Um, you know, but I, I don't know a world like on this stage. Um, I don't know. I'm going through like other. Is there anything in like a Super Bowl or? I don't know, man. This is this is like I feel like we have now just kind of witnessed. Like the bar has now been raised where like this will be the thing that future bizarre moments in championship events are are going to be compared to. Like, oh, wow, he pulled a Zidane out there. Like this is like you are kind of like living in history watching that. But the problem with this incident is to trying to decode what happened because the ball was uh, the, the players were assembled in the box from the replay from what we saw. Uh, the ball was kind of in that area. And Matarazzi just had his arm draped around the defender, as you would to get touched tight. There's no contact. He takes his hands off him and they walk up the field as the play develops in a different part of the field. And then there's an exchange of words. 
And Matarazzi keeps talking as Zidane walks past him. Zidane turns around, comes back, and headbutts him square into the chest. And that's it. It's over. A red card. I don't want to say, Andrew, it decided the game because it didn't. It went to penalties in the end. But uh, unbelievable. And and we'll, we'll talk about that specifically, although I want to say I'm on our... I'm on our caught offside MySpace account right now. Right. Scrolling through in some of the aftermath. And um, you're having word is kind of leaking out over what this encounter entailed. And uh, there's some saying, I guess, that Zidane, Matarazzi had his arm over Zidane's jersey. Zidane made some kind of like little quip of, you know, if you, if you want my jersey so badly, I'll just give it to you after the match. And then Zidane said something, or then Matarazzi said something derogatory that I almost don't even feel comfortable saying on this podcast about Zidane's sister. You you can text me on my Motorola Razor later, okay? Uh, flip phones, the way of the future. Oh man, it's never going to get better than this. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the hard thing to do right now is trying to com- compartmentalize the match from the moment. Um, and I- I'm trying to do that, but I guess... Well, can you allow me to do that? Uh, yeah, sure. So I, I think this is the best way to look at this game. Um, in the first half, Italy began, began the game so robustly, Andrew. They were absolutely pumped for it. Um, it you know, there was a midfield, I want to say like a midfield four for France of Malouda, Makaleli, Vieira and Ribéry. And they were just outmatched for en- energy by Gattuso, uh, Parata, Camerinesi. and. You know, we saw straight away Thierry Henry runs into uh, Cannavaro and has a concussion and is almost out of the game until the second half. He, d- he doesn't really have much of an impact. They even had to use the smelling salts on him. And um, so so that that kind of creates this disjointed start because it's a stop start with the, with the Thierry Henry injury. And then there's a penalty after seven minutes, uh, probably, I wouldn't say against the run of play, but Matarazzi is involved straight away. Did he make contact with... Uh, Maluda, as he runs through, not sure. Zidane, even the penalty wasn't orthodox. The, he, he's clipped oh. it. It's, he's clipped it. He's put too much on it. He's beaten Buffon, who is committed to his right-hand side. It hits the underside of the crossbar. is clearly over the line, but the backspin brings it back out. So French, French hearts are in their mouths for a minute. Um, and then, you know, we, we go through this kind of period of of just kind of poor football. Uh, Grasso and Parata are stifling Ribéry, who's having to bring the ball back into the centre, and it's all crowded. The Italians are very aggressive. And then we have the Italian goal from a set piece, 19 minutes. Pirlo lofts in this amazing outswinger. Matarazzi powers the header home, uh, out jumps Patrick Vieira to the ball. And it's just the most amazing uh, start to the game. And and we think, wow, we can't see any shape to this game. I would say that the Italians were on top for the most part. Um, Zidane, and I think this is key, Andrew, Zidane seems to be playing slightly ahead of the ball, almost like a centre forward and out of position and is getting in contact with the with the Italian centre-backs a lot. Um, but Italy are carving out the better chances. Luca Toni hits the crossbar. Um, then, you know, towards the end of that half, we see Zidane try and get on the ball, make something happen. And again, Matarazzi, crunching tackle. And I would say... For the most part, particularly from corner kicks and set pieces, Italy dominated the game and certainly dominated the tackles, and the French couldn't get any rhythm. Second half, 
different story. I think the French dominated without creating a, a ton of chances. A couple things off of that. Uh, first off, um, Zidane and Matarazzi, like it, it was just amazing how these two figures were so central to this entire game. Like they obviously they scored both the goals. Uh, Matarazzi at fault on the penalty. Zidane, of course, red carded when he headed Matarazzi, and then Matarazzi converted his penalty um, in the shootout at the end of the match. Just like an incredible back and forth between these two figures. I think it's amazing to put the context of Matarazzi's tournament. I mean, without Alessandro Nesta's injury, Andrew, he's nowhere near this team. Well, he's obviously in the squad, but if you ask most Italian journalists, they they thought Matarazzi would be the weak link. Now, you can say that he, his tackle to, I don't know what it was, his weird kind of lunge, um, which felled Maluda, although I don't even think he made that much contact, but whatever, it was a, a, a reckless challenge. Um, would suggest he had a bad start to the game. He also that had that deflected header that just went past the post. But Matarazzi, to become a central figure in this game, when you consider there was Pirlo, a Camarnese, Totti Andrew had a terrible game, absolutely anonymous. Um, but you think of the Italian talent, and it's their centre-back that's really the kingmaker in this game. Yeah, Um and you know it's interesting as the game wore on. You know France did have. I know what you're saying, but France did have legitimate chances. Like you know Zidane had a free header that he just kind of put a little too centrally. And Thierry Henry almost completed a moment that I think would have had had he done it. He kind of spins through like the entire Italian defense, right? And he needs, he needs to play a ball into the middle. I don't remember if it was Maluda who was in front and Henri, he makes the pass, but it's deflected away. If he completes that play, it's got to go down as one of the great world cup final goals of all time. But unfortunately for him, he can't quite finish the job. You're um, right. Time and again, though, Andrew, what was happening? Cannavaro was coming out of the center to cut. He had a magnificent game. Every time one of the fullbacks, which was rare to be fair, but if the fullback was beaten, he was like a demon out of the center and, and making tackles deflecting the ball, making clearances. There's one moment, I think in the second half, where Henri is in the box and he does this little shimmy. Cannavaro falls for it and falls over and still gets up and wins the ball. Absolutely incredible. The defender of the tournament by miles. Yeah, and for France, it kind of at the end, I don't know if it was fatigue or what, but you could see it just sort of devolved into like, firing 30-yard blasts at net, just hoping for some kind of miracle, which was not answered. Most well, people just fired well over the net. Well, you're right, Andrew, uh, but I think it's important if Zidane's header in extra time that you talked about is left or right of Buffon into the ground, they're going to be champions in my view. And also, Frank Ribery, right before he was taken off and replaced by Trezeguet, who got a hero's welcome from the French support, um, right before that, Ribery just... It's a weak effort, but it's a clear sight on goal in the box. Pushed he, it passes, wide. he pushes it wide to the left of Buffon. Yeah, Trezeguet got that reception. If only they knew what was going to happen. Well, you're, you were, of course, alluding to the penalty. Mason. He missed his penalty. He did. He hit the crossbar, and unfortunately, it was not the right side of the line. The football gods giveth, as they, did for, they have for him personally in the past, and they... Oh, they taketh away. But I think what you said earlier is an important thing to mention again. And that is like, this match is always going to be remembered for what Zidane did. That will be, that is the image forever um, of 
what we'll take away from this. But you are right. They did not lose this game because of that. I mean, there was only, okay, maybe you could say if he's still on the pitch in the last 10 minutes and Italy is tired, he's capable of creating that moment of brilliance. But there wasn't really much leading up to that that made you think it was coming. Um, and Italy well, didn't score until penalties. So it, I can't necessarily say they, they lost this because of him. I, that would be unfair. No, and if you noticed, he was at walking pace for a lot of the rest of that game after the 80, 80th minute. And this is why I'm talking about him getting involved with the centre-backs. He was, if, if I was um, Raymond Dominique, the French coach, I would have said, find pockets, you know, try and get on the ball. But whatever you do, do not engage with the centre half. Don't be that far forward. On the 80th minute, Andrew, he went up for a header with Cannavaro and he got injured. And he made the signal that he thought he needed to come off because his shoulder was in pain. Um, so that's just adding to the frustrations. And to see him anywhere near Matarazzi, I know they're on the same field. I know he's an attacking player, but Zidane was at his most effective, if you can say that, in the game when he was picking the ball up a little bit deeper and trying to set things in motion. Yeah. Before we get out on this, and we'll have a more, much more extensive non-emergency podcast, we'll, we'll do our World Cup 06 to Vunlings. We still have much to come. But for this, I guess in, in reflecting on this Italy team, um, I feel like one of the ways you can tell just how great a team is is sometimes to look at their bench. Right. And, and I'm, I'm looking at who's sitting over there, and some of these guys came on and made big impacts in this game. But like – you know, De Rossi, Del Piero, Gilardino, Inzaghi, Zaccardo, like, you, you know, Nesta, who you mentioned earlier, who was on the bench today. Like, are you kidding me? Like, some of those names not good enough to start for this team? Like, so, you know, again, the Zidane thing is the dominant story, but I, I feel like it would be unfair for us to not look at Italy as deserving champions. Like, this is, this is a truly great team. And, and look at their road to do this. Like, having to beat Germany in the middle of this German reawakening and like this, you know, what that team was doing in this tournament, like it's an incredible win for them to have gotten through. Really. It makes me proud as an American fan, because the only game in this tournament that Italy did not win was the one against us. So really we are kind of pseudo champions and I'm uh, holding my own personal parade uh, later uh, in the week, if you would like to attend. And can I tell you, how dare you, how dare you mention the name of Daniela De Rossi, who, really had the whole tournament off after bloodying Captain America, Brian McBride, in that game. True. Um, yeah, but I, I would like to make mention, uh, Luca Toni was a tireless batter up front in in in, the, in a role which was like often found him isolated and often found him plowing a lone furrow as the, um, as the I suppose, you know, the, <laughs> the center forward who really had to be not a battering ram, but had to live off scraps in the game. I, and uh, I thought you, when you saw Cameronese being substituted for Del Piero, the joy on his face coming off because Cameronese put in a shift and he enjoyed that game, Andrew, as did Gattuso. They were absolutely tireless and they never really gave that midfield a chance to settle on the ball. And to be honest with you, Makaleli, both Makaleli and Patrick Vieira uh, Patrick Vieira more so who had to come off. He, you know, Italy made them look old. But um, just finally, before we get out, you know, Zidane came out of retirement for this game. Oh. Or not, not for this game, for this tournament. tournament to, bring, yeah. to bring France to this tournament. Um, that was his last moment as a professional footballer. Really, really quite sad. I, I, I mean, this. I, I just wonder how this guy... Well, it's unfair to say how will he get remembered. He's a legend of the game, and and that that remains unchanged today. But 
I don't know. That was, it was just, it is just such a profound image that I feel like this is now a big part of his legacy as well. And that's, that's unfortunate. This was a really fun tournament. I'm sad to see it over. And I'm sad to see it over like that with like that, that image that you talked about before of him walking by the trophy as he goes into the back into the dressing room. Like that's, that's kind of the lasting image that I'll remember from this world cup. It's so that's a little bit of a disappointing note to go out on, but as it is now July of 2006, I am recently graduated from college. I have no job, JJ. So um, I need to go back to writing up resumes and sending them places and trying to find work because I'm not ready to face the real world. I want to go back to college is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, you're in that moment. I, I graduated the, the year before and uh, I'm feeling the same. And uh, Andrew, we are really not making money out of this podcast. Let's be honest. No, no. I don't even know if anyone's hearing this. My microphone's not even plugged into anything. I'm I'm speaking to a bean can, but it's still fun, isn't it? Oh, the joy of it! Uh, well, hey, this was this was fun. Listen, let's hop back in because we got to get back into uh, back into reality. Let's go. And we're back. Oh, I love these these journeys through time. They are riveting. Um, that it's game, amazing. though, like that, I, I I feel like a lot of what we said in that uh, emergency podcast back in '06 has held up. I, the Zidane moment is, it's if you rank top ten moments in World Cup history, it's, it's what is it top five maybe in terms of like the shock value of it. It, it, it was stunning. It was absolutely yeah. stunning, Andrew. And and it's not like over the over the course of the tournament that Italy weren't well organized. That Lippi didn't do a great job. You know. On, even on the balance of that game, you I, watching back, I can make the argument Italy deserved to win, but but I just felt like Zidane has to be on the field for the denouement of that game. The you, denouement, yeah. Yes, you, he has to be. When the curtain falls on his professional career, he can't be in the locker room wondering why he headed Marco Materazzi over an alleged slur. It's just... Unbelievable. It's, it's the wrong ending, and it, it will always rankle with people who love Zidane. Now, he has kind of come back and written a new script, too. Like he had, His second act of his career has been a, a, a fabulous one. I know, but I've talked to ex-professional footballers. I've talked to Stevie Nichol. I've talked to uh, Graham Soonis. I've talked to Liam Brady about it as well. And, you know, you ask them about their careers, and you ask them, would you go back and do it all again if you could? And you want to see the wistful look in their eye, the longing in their eye. And they don't even have they their careers petered out, Andrew. This was a blaze of ignominy. Yeah. Oh, uh, let's see now. Red card. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, AJ, I'm, can I go first? You Sorry. may. All right. Uh, mine goes to predictably. You're probably wondering how have they not mentioned this story yet. Well, we're about to. Kyle Walker. Oh, oh, Kyle Walker. I'm reading from The Guardian here, JJ. Manchester City are going to conduct a disciplinary investigation following reports Kyle Walker broke quarantine rules by hosting a party with two sex workers while the UK remains in lockdown because of the coronavirus pandemic. A report in The Sun said Walker and a friend paid uh, £2,200 for Louise McNamara and a 24-year-old Brazilian woman to visit his home last Tuesday. Hmm. Um, It was reported the escorts left on Wednesday. The same day, the city and England right back used social media to urge the public to follow government guidelines on social distancing and protect the NHS by staying indoors. Now, Walker, of course, has apologized. What choice does he have? 
He said, I want to take this opportunity to issue a public apology for the choices I made last week. I understand that my position as a professional footballer brings the responsibility of being a role model. As such, I want to apologize to my family, friends, football club, supporters, and the public for letting them down. Um, in fairness to Walker, he never left his house. <laughs> Andrew, yeah. um, look, Kyle Walker, he's got to obey the social distancing rules. He's got to be aware of the dangers of this pandemic. I mean, the first thing you said to me when you heard we were going into quarantine, you said, I got to do what I got to do. I'm canceling all my orgies. My orgies are done for the foreseeable future. You called all your friends. You called all your um, sex party goers, and you told them that. Yeah. And that Hello. was responsible yeah. from you. Hello, sex worker? Yeah, the party's been canceled. Is this Andrew? I have you on speed dial. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Kyle Walker. That was that was really something. What do you have? Uh, what I have is Jose Mourinho. Uh, this was breaking news today. Um, uh, David Heitner reports this in The Guardian. Jose Mourinho oh, and members of his Tottenham squad have been pictured on Hadley Common in North London, having ignored government rules to train there during the coronavirus lockdown. It's a different gathering to your gathering, Andrew, and Kyle's gathering, but there we go. Footage emerged on social media of Mourinho wearing his trademark purple spurs training top and tracksuit bottoms, overseeing a makeshift session with Tangue in Dumbele. <laughs> That's can you? Fantastic. That's I haven't a seen the story yet of all yeah. the players. Can you imagine when Tange Indombele got that text? Oh my god! And he's got to say yes. He's got no choice. In a video clip, Davinson Sanchez and Ryan Sessegnon can be seen jogging side by side, flouting the two meter distancing distance distancing requirement. Something which has unsurprisingly aggravated the hierarchy at Spurs. Mourinho is understood to be adamant distancing was respected during his session on the common. During the pandemic, the government has made it plain and clear that outdoor exercise can be undertaken only with other people from the same household. A Spurs spokesperson said, all of our players have been reminded to respect social distancing when exercising outdoors. We shall continue to reinforce this message. Wait, so, because you saying this now is the first that I'm hearing of this story. And this yes. Is, so this, he held a training session in full view of anyone in a public park? Yeah, Hadley Common in North London. And he invited, what a weird group to invite. Davinson Sanchez, Ryan Sessegnon. I guess Sessegnon's been well, struggling struggling well, a bit. And Tange Indombele. Now, I, what I wonder is if he had any criticism when he was on Hadley Common. Did he make sure that he gathered everybody who, el- who, who was walking in the Common around and say, hey, I'm about to criticize Tange. I need everyone to hear this. <laughs> Little girl, come over here. I have to tell you how poor his effort has been. Man with a dog, Tange can't track back. You need to know this, please. But like you say, these are the players who were, who were invited. You don't know. The whole team might have been invited, but these might have just been the guys who felt compelled that they had to say yes. Tange and Dombele wants to play again. Like, he probably feels like I better do everything this man tells me to do or I'm or I'm done here. How many rep- how many responses did he get which were new phone who dis? Yeah. Oh my god, this is like but like imagine the at least put on a mask like so people can't recognize who you are. This is like if the Knicks during quarantine went to train at Rucker Park. Like hey, we know you're the Knicks. Like there's no hiding. Like this is that's he, 
he wore his tracksuit. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Uh, let's see. We continue now. Man of the match. All right, JJ. I went with this story that I saw at ESPN FC today. Bill Barnwell, who I'm very fond of, brilliant writer, really enjoy his work. He just released a list of the top 100. I mean, he did the work here. The top 100 transfers in Premier League history. Um, he's got four primary qualifications for how he came up with this list. Uh, the player must have been purchased while the club was in the Premier League. Uh, the player must have established himself in senior football before joining the club. No loans, only full purchases. And the team gets credit for what you accomplished while you were at the club under the specific transfer. Um, number one, the greatest transfer in Premier League history. Would you like to guess? And I'm going to say right now that I happen to disagree with it. Roy Keane. Uh, no, he was top 10, though. Roy Keane, actually, I have the top 10 here. I didn't put the full 100. He was number nine. Um, ooh, let me think. Um, Want me to tell you? Yeah, go on, because there's just so many. And uh, Yeah, no, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, Thierry Henry, number one transfer in the history of the Premier League. Signed from Juventus in 1999 for 14.5 million pounds. Here's some of what Bill Barnwell said in his explanation. He said Henri is the only player in the Premier League uh, to record a 2020 season, racking up 24 goals and 20 assists for Arsenal during 0-2-0-3. He won PFA Player of the Season in 0-3-0-4, was man of the match in their FA Cup victory in 0-3, but he raised his game even further the following year. Henri won the European Golden Boot by scoring 30 goals for Arsenal, who went undefeated in their greatest campaign. Uh, Henri was named PFA Player of the Season again for the 0-5-0-6 season. The Arsenal legend was named to the PFA Team of the Year six times, across his eight seasons with the club, which is incredible, given that Henri missed half of his final campaign through injuries. Uh, it's a good choice. I'm not going to kill him for it. However, uh, he is Cristiano Ronaldo eighth, and I think that that is... That's nonsense. Uh, it's impossible to understand that. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo was signed for just 17 million pounds in 2013. Uh, Andrew, 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 I like Bill as well. I like his stuff, but I'm just flicking through it here. He's got Didier Drogba at 10. Yeah. Like... How are you including guys who were part of the massive outlay of cash at the time for $34.7 million? Well, and here's oh, the reason. No, that and, and my issue with this is like he's mixed them in with these unbelievable value signings. And he's got, by the way, he's got the signing for Nottingham Forest wrong. It wasn't $7.7 million. United bought Roy Keane for $3.5 million, which was a British transfer record at the time. But still, as we go on with like, in terms of, of, of the way the transfer just skyrocketed after that. I trust Bill, though. Were there escalators in that? No, that, like, it's not. Seven, it's oh, so you know better seven. than him. Yeah, okay. That's 7.7. And, 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 you know, he's got Wayne Rooney, who was a record signing and the like the youngest player, like one of the touted young players, one of the visible young players who everyone was was trying to get, including clubs like Newcastle United. Like there's no value index in here at all. And then he has Cantona at six. Cantona should be further up. 1.6 million for Eric Cantona. It was a steal, Bill. What are you doing? Well, here's the reason that to me, Ronaldo should be number one on this list. A, they got him at a reasonable price. B, think of what he achieved at Manchester United. Henri didn't win a Champions League. Cristiano Ronaldo did at Manchester United. But on top of all that, because he does factor in value in, in his decision-making. So Ronaldo netted Manchester United $70 million from what they bought him at to what they sold him on to Real Madrid for. So he, he was a good purchase in terms of the money. He achieved unbelievable things with the club. And then they made an unbelievable amount from him. 
So like to me, he checks all the boxes to the like to the nth degree. Um, but it was a great list. I, I I tell everybody go check it out because it's it'll get you thinking about all this stuff, uh, which is good. But yeah, so Thierry Henry, I guess technically gets my my man of the match, even though I don't necessarily agree with him being number one. But uh, there you have it, the greatest transfer in EPL history. What do you have? Oh, I'm just so angry after that. I, I, I don't think Bill's done the numbers right. He hasn't done the numbers right at all. It's very disappointing. Uh, man of the match for me, um, it's a, a report from Reuters on ESPN FC. Um, and it's a different type of Tottenham training. Tottenham Hotspur striker Sung Min Han will be exposed to tear gas, undertake live fire drills, and go on a 30-kilometer loaded march during three weeks of intense military training in South Korea this month. If I know Tottenham, I know this won't end well. A Marine Corps official said on Tuesday he'll like stand on a live landmine or something. God forbid. All able-bodied men are required to serve in the military for around two years in South Korea, which is technically still at war with the North. But Sun received an exemption for leading the country to gold at the 2018 Asian Games. Sun 27 will complete his mandatory military service while the Premier League uh, Games remain suspended due to the coronavirus outbreak, the London club said on Monday. Son, in self-quarantine due to the outbreak, would begin the stint on April 20th at a Marine Corps unit in the southernmost island of Jeju, local media said. The Military Manpower Administration, MMA, which handles conscription issues, declined to confirm the date and location, citing privacy rules. But an official at the Marine Corps said that Son would receive a shortened version of a boot camp required for all new regular enlistees, including discipline education, combat drills, and a chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear exercise. A video of military training posted by MMA on YouTube showed a group of soldiers undergoing undergoing CBRN training in a gas chamber. After a few minutes, they are let out, tears streaming down their faces, and pouring water over their heads. The The CBRN training is usually the toughest part of the boot camp, the video said. The Marine Corps official said Sun would wrap up the three-week service period with a group march of up to 30 kilometers. Once you're in the military, you should be able to fire a rifle, breathe in the gas, and participate in a battle, rolling and crawling around the field, the official told Reuters. Good for him. I mean, there's a certain amount of pain and uh, tears are indeed induced playing for Tottenham Hotspur, but this is taking it to uh, a... Why? Why do you have to do that? That is so cheap. That is so cheap. But It's interesting with him, though. Like, I don't know. I hope this isn't taken the wrong way. He's just so, he's so happy-go-lucky. It's hard for me to picture him doing war things. You know? Yeah. Like, well, I've spent some, uh, I spent a, a week in South Korea and visited the de, uh, the demilitarized zone wow. and kind of came in contact with a fair few uh, South Korean soldiers. And um, yeah, they're very, very stoic, very, um, obviously they're, they're on duty. They're not going to be smiling and, and laughing around. And I just see Son as this kind of, I don't know, kind of happy-go-lucky character. Yeah. And it just, it just, I, I can't see him in the military uniform. But you know, obviously, that's what's going to happen. Um, my uh, sister-in-law is from Seoul, and she tells me that Son has the reputation of a, you know, a playboy in really? South Korea. Yeah, as a guy about town, girls love him. He might date a K-pop star or something like that. And. Um, and yeah, he's going into the army. It's 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 quite something. Wow. Wow. Oh man. 
Well, there you have it, folks. No, there you don't have there it. You, yep, there you have it. No, you don't have it. We've got one thing left to do. If you will indulge me, please, Andrew. As long, uh, please tell me it's not an insufferable critics corner. No, it's not an insufferable critics corner. It's this. That's right, Andrew. <laughs> What's right? I it's, have no idea it, what I'm hearing. It's the Belarusian music, and that means it's Belarusian football watch. Here we go. Belarusian football watch. Um, so Dynamo Minsk got their first win of the season with a 2-0 victory on Friday night over Torpede, Torpedo Belaz Zodinho and Bate Barasov. They got off to their first win of the season with a win over Rude Brest. And the weekend's fixtures for the big two in Belarusian football. Gorodiea will host Dynamo Minsk that Saturday at 11 a.m., and Minsk, not of the Dynamo variety, will play Bate Barasov at home at 10 a.m. on Sunday. Let's go, Belarusia. Oh, you're all in. It's adorable. I like seeing the side of you. There we go. That's the end of the podcast. It's over when I say it's over. Hey, this was fun. Uh, I hope you're feeling well. I hope everyone out there listening is feeling well. Thinking of all of our uh, great listeners right now. Keep tweeting us and like communicating with us and... Uh, you know, just letting you know what you've been up to, what you're watching, all that stuff throughout the course of this uh, this quarantine. I we think so. I think so, Andrew. You can contact us. Follow us on Twitter if you don't already. Follow us on Instagram, Caught Offside ESPN, and uh, get get in contact. Uh, retweet the podcast when you see it. There may be some lonely soccer fan out there who doesn't know about us. Retweet it when it comes up on our Twitter, at CO Soccer Pod, and they'll get a chance to listen to it. And I may even do a Twitter live in Whoa. the coming days. And uh, I'll take you through my book collection. Oh, your smugness knows no bounds, even in this situation. Can I admit something? Uh, Yes, War and Peace. Read that three times. There's something that I do uh, regularly um, to to you and my girlfriend to try and seem intelligent. I will send you... Now, they are good articles, and I have read them, but I'm definitely sending them to you so I seem more erudite and, uh, and, you know, just more intelligent. I always, if I read something from the New York Review oh. of Books or from the Atlantic, I always go, yeah, yeah, I must send that to Andrew or my girlfriend just to keep up the pretense that I'm smart when in actual fact, I'm a complete moron. I'll tell anyone that that will listen. Well, hey, this was fun to you. I say you still haven't gotten the hang of this, have you? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, check you later, fun boy. There you go. Take care. Bye. Listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast.